Well, um, thank you so much for coming. It is a tremendous pleasure to be here. I love talking about uh, Justice Marshall. Um, I will never forget the first time I met Thurgood Marshall. Um, a few days earlier, I had been, much to my surprise, I got a telephone call indicating that he wanted to, oh, I forgot, I'm supposed to introduce myself. <laughs> I'm Mike Seidman, okay. Um, a few days earlier, I got a telephone call indicating that he wanted to interview me for a clerkship. Uh, and at that time, I lived within, in Southwest, within walking distance of the Supreme Court. So I got dressed up in my best suit mm -hmm. and, and started off uh, walking to the interview. Uh, there was uh, one of these huge Washington thunderstorms that broke out about when I was about halfway there. Uh, there was no shelter, I had no umbrella, there was nothing to do but just keep walking through this downpour. Um, I arrived at his chambers and immediately this puddle formed around me and there was the unmistakable smell of soaking wet wool that just pervaded the whole area. Uh, he seemed not to notice at all. Um, now I had been prepared for a thorough grilling on the intricacies of constitutional law, and um, I was ready to try my best to impress him. Um, but that's not quite what happened. He, he was a, just a huge mountain of a man, and he pushed his uh, chair back and put his feet up on the desk and started to tell me the most amazing stories, stories about litigating civil rights cases in the 1930s in the Deep South, uh, stories about arguing important cases before the Supreme Court, stories about the foibles of the other justices. Um, and this went on for some time. Um, and then he stopped talking, and it took me a minute. And I realized the interview was over. And I hadn't said a word. So I, did, I had no idea what he made of this. I walked out. Uh, the next day, I'm sitting at my desk and the telephone rings and I pick up the phone and uh, in this booming voice, uh, no secretary, nothing like that. Mike, yes, this Thurgood Marshall. And if you don't got nothing better to do with your time, you can come on and work with the other knuckleheads who work for me. And that's how I found out um, I had the job. Uh, years later, um, I took my uh, students to meet Justice Marshall. And one of the students asked how he picked his law clerks. And uh, his answer was he had hundreds and hundreds of applicants for law clerks from all over the country, the very best uh, lawyers and students in the world. And he carefully reviewed the applications to make sure that he picked the three biggest knuckleheads he could find. <laughs> um, so um, um, Marshall sat for this portrait uh, some 16 years before I met him. Uh, the artist is Betsy Grave, uh, Graves Renault. Um, she was a remarkable woman, and she had a deep connection to both the law and to social justice. Um, her grandfather was the Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court. Um, even when she was a young woman, uh, still in school, she protested against terrible working conditions for uh, manual laborers. Uh, in 1917, she was the first person arrested 
uh, in protest against uh, Woodrow Wilson's refusal to endorse suffrage for women. Um, while living in, the, uh, in Europe in the 1930s, she opened up her house to uh, Jewish refugees from the Nazi regime. Eventually, she left Europe because she just could not abide the fascism that was taking over there, came to the United States, and uh, because of her deep uh, opposition to racial discrimination, she devoted the rest of her career to painting the portraits of distinguished African-Americans. And this is just one of many portraits she did of famous African-Americans. This portrait was painted in 1956 um, when Thurgood Marshall was at the height of his powers. Um, two years earlier, he had won the most important case in Supreme Court history, uh, Brown versus Board of Education, which struck down segregated schools. Um, this was the culmination for him of a campaign um, that he had begun 20 years earlier. Uh, first, as the chief assistant to his mentor, uh, Charles Hamilton Houston, and later as head of the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund. Um, he sat for this portrait some five years before he was appointed to the United States Court of Appeals by John F. Kennedy, um, some eight years before he was appointed the government's top lawyer, it's a solicitor general, uh, by Lyndon Johnson, and some 11 years before Lyndon Johnson appointed him to the Supreme Court. Um, the portrait captures one important aspect of Marshall's personality. Uh, as you can see from the picture, he was a strikingly handsome man, a large, athletic, and imposing at this stage of his life, uh, he had a charismatic personality that just drew people to him. Um, when he wanted to, uh, he could be very informal, as you just heard, but when he wanted to, he could also strike a pose of tremendous dignity and could actually be quite intimidating. Um, no single portrait captures every aspect of someone's personality, and uh, this one does not convey two important things about Marshall that I want to talk about. Um, one thing it doesn't convey, I don't know quite how it could, is his physical courage. Um, um, during his long fight against Jim Crow, he led a kind of double life. So on the one hand, he regularly argued and regularly argued brilliantly and successfully uh, before the United States Supreme Court and other august tribunals there, the atmosphere was formal, dignified, and restrained. But at the same time, he was often in small southern towns, organizing and litigating under the most uh, hostile, imaginable conditions. Uh, more than once, he ignored threats on his life uh, he, and barely escaped uh, angry lynch mobs or local bigoted police officials who, I think it's fair to say, did not exactly wish him well. Um, the other thing the portrait does not portray um, is Marshall's sense of humor. Um, there could not be another person of his accomplishments and stature who was so self-effacing. Um, he just would not take himself seriously um, or anyone else entirely seriously either. Um, um, so, for example, his name was listed in the phone book. Anybody who wanted to could look it up and call him. Um, as you've already heard, he made his own phone calls, um, drove himself to work, 
acted in a completely casual manner uh, with everyone who knew him, whether it was um, a secretary, a messenger, uh, a tourist, uh, the chief justice, the president. He treated everybody uh, the same way. Um, it's hard to capture his sense of humor, but it had a real bite to it. Um, and also, he sometimes used it to deal with very tense situations. So um, um, I'll just give you some examples. When he, was, when he first started as uh, a judge on the United States Court of Appeals, uh, he went to, uh, to a meeting with his colleague, uh, Justice Friendly, Judge Friendly, down the hall. He walks into the uh, Judge Friendly's chambers, and the secretary immediately takes him for the plumber that they had called and says to him, I'm so glad you're here. We need the toilet fixed. Um, Justice Marshall comes back to his chambers and says to his secretary, you wouldn't believe Judge Friendly has a secretary who's absolutely crazy. She thinks that a black man can get into the New York Plumbers Union. <laughs> um, or another occasion, um, he's uh, in the uh, uh, Supreme Court elevator, and some tourists come in. They turn to him and say, third floor, please. Marshall, full attention. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> and pushes the button to the third floor. Only after they got there did they discover that this was uh, a, a uh, associate justice of the United States Supreme Court who they had told to go to the third floor. Um, the the uh, chief justice of the United States when he was there, a gentleman by the name of uh, Warren Berger, um, could not have been more different from Marshall, both in his social outlook and in his personality. He was a man of unrivaled pomposity who um, took full advantage of the fact that he was Chief Justice of the United States. So for example, whenever he entered the room, he expected everybody to stand. Um, Marshall would refer to him um, uh, in, uh, to his face, he'd call him Chiefy Baby. <laughs> you could imagine what, what uh, Justice Berger thought of that. Or when, when uh, I just remember this like it was yesterday, um, he'd be sitting in his chambers and uh, his secretary would say that Berger would call. He'd get on the phone, he'd put on his best, thickest Amos and Andy accent and say, yeah, boss. Um, well, there was a point to this humor. Um, it made people uncomfortable and it made them uncomfortable for, I think, a good reason what it um, was designed to demonstrate um, is that no matter what position he occupied, no matter how high he rose, he always thought of himself um, as an outsider. Uh, he was just not seduced by power. He understood that um, in, in a very fundamental sense that power corrupts, and he was uncorruptible. And for that reason, um, for his entire life, and certainly his, his years on the Supreme Court, he was a great dissenter. He never bought into uh, uh, the ideology of power that influenced a lot of the other justices. And I think there's uh, maybe no better example of that than um, one of the 
uh, last and I think greatest speeches he gave, this is not his sense of humor, this was dead serious. So in 1976, the country was um, celebrating, it's not one of his last speeches, I shouldn't say that, but certainly one of his most important. In 1976, the country was celebrating the bicentennial of the Constitution. And Warren Burger um, resigned his position as Chief Justice, he said, so that he could devote his entire time to the celebration of this wonderful document that we could all be so proud of and stand up and salute. Um, Justice Marshall um, said something quite extraordinary. He said he didn't see any reason to celebrate the bicentennial of the Constitution because the Constitution was a deeply flawed document. It was written by people who owned other human beings, um, and it instantiated into our fundamental law uh, injustices like uh, slavery. And it wasn't until uh, almost 100 years after it was adopted and a civil law war that cost 600,000 lives uh, that the problems with the Constitution were rectified. This is not exactly the kind of thing you expect Supreme Court justices to say. I can't imagine anyone sitting on the Supreme Court now um, who would say a thing like that. It was incredibly courageous. Um, that's the kind of um, man that he was, and um, we could sure use him now. Mm -hmm. I think I'll stop there, and um, I'm happy to have a discussion or take questions or use the rest of the time any, any way that you folks want to use it. Yes? Uh, I was wondering if you could tell us uh, who he replaced, because I remember hearing a story that LBJ had wanted Marshall to become the next Supreme Court justice, but there was no vacancy. That's correct. He turned to somebody's son. That's who correct. Was politically ambitious, and I can't recall the name. He did. So, so Lyndon Johnson was a remarkable wheeler dealer. He very much wanted to appoint Marshall to the court, and he wanted to appoint the first African American to the court. But as you say, there were no vacancies. So what did he do? Um, he um, uh, appointed Ramsey Clark who was the, um, a, a, a very bright and upcoming lawyer uh, to, be, to be Attorney General of the United States. Ramsey Clark uh, was Tom Clark's son. And, sin, and since uh, uh, Tom Clark could not sit on cases where the Attorney General was a party and the Attorney General's a party to about half the cases, Tom Clark had to resign. And that's how uh, he got to appoint uh, Thurgood Marshall to the court. And, and along with that, I, I thought I recall hearing that, the, the, that nine justices is not in the Constitution. Could, couldn't they add another one? I thought that there was, uh, you can, it's not, there's no legislation, there's no constitutional provision that it has to be just nine. So why couldn't he just add a date? Your name is? Audrey. Audrey, uh, I can tell you know a lot about this subject. Um, uh, you're exactly right. Um, there are not the Constitution doesn't specify the number of Supreme Court justices, and over the country's history, um, the numbers varied. Um, at, at one time, there were five, then there were six. Also, um, they, on occasion, the number has changed um, in order to achieve a political objective by, uh, by for example, the president. So um, a, a justice was added to the Supreme Court 
because Lincoln was worried that the legal tender law was going to be held unconstitutional. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt tried but failed to add six justices to the Supreme Court. He wanted to have 15 so as to um, overturn the decisions that were hampering the New Deal. So why didn't uh, Johnson just change the law and add another justice? Well, the answer is, um, although it's not specified in the Constitution and although the number has changed, uh, it hasn't changed um, at, at the time he was acting. It hadn't changed in almost 100 years. And uh, it would have required a statute to add a justice, and that was very unlikely. It's, it's what I would call sort of, at this point, sort of a quasi-constitutional provision. So it's not in the Constitution. It's just in a statute. But it's one of these statutes that um, uh, people think of as our fundamental law and so are not likely to change. Yes? Uh, could you tell us about uh, your experiences while you worked for him and which cases? Well, I was there during um, a very interesting period. Um, the year I was there, uh, Roe versus Wade was decided. Um, one of the things that is quite remarkable about that in retrospect, I don't believe anybody on the court realized how important the decision was going to, be, to become. Um, people knew it was um, uh, an important case, but I don't think they thought necessarily it was the most important case that was decided that term. Uh, there were other cases about uh, pornography and about um, uh, school funding uh, that people thought were more important. And actually, um, so in addition to going to the portrait gallery, a place you should definitely go is the uh, museum, uh, which has all of these old newspapers. And I took the trouble to look up the New York Times on the day that uh, Roe versus Wade was decided. And it was not the lead story in the Times that day. Uh, so it's an illustration of how when you're in the middle of things, sometimes you don't uh, really have the sense of uh, what's going to be important and what's not. Yes? I was going to ask, how long, I mean, I'm not familiar with the American system, how long did you be as a, as a system? I was there for a year. There were, um, at that time, there were three law clerks per justice. Um, now there were four. And it's, it's a, a very strange system, but I think an effective one. The justices pick people right out of law school. And you wouldn't think that um, you'd think they would want people more experienced. But it has the virtue of bringing fresh blood into the court all the time and new ideas and, and new energy. But it is very strange. So for example, um, I had not taken um, antitrust law in uh, law school. My first experience with antitrust law was drafting an opinion for the United States Supreme Court on the subject of antitrust law. Um, a terrifying prospect, if you, if you think about it. Had he had a similar experience? I mean, what was his background? Who were his mentors? So he had, uh, uh, perhaps, I sh perhaps I should have said more about that. He uh, uh, grew up um, in a family that was not poor, but, but certainly not wealthy. His father was a uh, rail porter. His mother was a teacher. Um, he, uh, they barely scraped the money together 
um, to, um, for him to go to Lincoln College. Um, uh, upon his graduation, he won, uh, he was admitted to Harvard Law School, but he didn't have the money to go. And so he went instead uh, to Howard Law School, uh, which turned out to be um, here in DC, which turned out to be perhaps one of the most important events in his life because the dean of Howard Law School then was a brilliant, dedicated lawyer uh, by the name of Charles Hamilton Houston. And Houston, um, a few years earlier, had met with a bunch of, with a rich donor and a bunch of um, people interested in social change and decided to map out a campaign to end Jim Crow in the United States. And Houston was tremendously impressed with Marshall as a student, both with his hard work and his personality and his brilliance. And Houston took him on as an assistant. And that's how Marshall got started. Um, eventually, Houston died and Marshall took over. Um, and um, he had a remarkable career. It, it, he, was, he was trying all sorts of cases, not just cases about segregation, but things like he, he litigated many cases involving criminal defendants who were treated poorly or who were uh, threatened with the death penalty, all sorts of um, cases. And as I say, it culminated with this amazing victory in the Supreme Court in Brown versus Board. Um, uh, that depends on uh, who you want to work for. I think it's fair to say that most uh, young uh, people applying for clerkships today apply to all nine of them. Uh, I did not do that because there were some I just could not imagine myself working for. Um, so I just applied to some of them. Yes? Well, so uh, let me say a word about that and also a word about um, Marshall's personality that um, has to do with that. So you're right, the press conference was, um, it was a side of Marshall that was just unmistakable, just blunt, honest, uh, and grouchy. Uh, he was, uh, he, he didn't make any, um, um, he didn't mince words about the direction he thought the court was going. It, uh, um, it, there had been uh, a series of conservative appointments to the Supreme Court, and by the way, that was just the beginning, uh, and he wasn't happy about it. Uh, and he, and he uh, um, after uh, Justice Thomas was appointed to replace him, um, this is, again, just not the sort of thing you hear Supreme Court justices say, Somebody asked him what he thought of Thomas uh, and, or, and what he thought of a black replacement. He said his mommy taught him that uh, you can have black snakes and you can have white snakes, but a snake is still a snake. That's what he said. 
So um, that is definitely one side of his personality. But it would be a mistake to think that was his whole personality. He could be very grumpy about how things were going, but he was fundamentally an optimistic and cheerful person. And one really remarkable thing about him was that even the people who he regularly came up against on the Supreme Court and disagreed with, he was friendly with. He liked them as people. They liked him. I have to say, I didn't like all of them, but he liked them. And um, one uh, very striking thing, when Justice O'Connor retired from the Supreme Court, somebody who he disagreed with constantly, she um, went out of her way to say how much of an impression Marshall had made on her and the extent to which she learned things from him um, that she just would never have known given her background and his background. How did you get along with Justice Brennan? They were the best, best of friends. Um, and uh, there was, there's a picture somebody took, which I just love, of the two of them walking down the hall from behind. Marshall um, was this towering, huge man. And Brennan uh, was shorter than I am. He was this sort of pixie of a man. And Brennan was tremendously friendly. He was an old Irish politician. So Brennan has his arm around Marshall, but he's walking like this <laughs> with his arm, arm around Marshall. Yes? That's right, and he was a great lawyer. A great lawyer. He argued in front of the Supreme Court and won, I guess, 29 out of 31 times or something. What are the cases he lost? I can't tell you. I, not off the top of my head. I don't know what cases he lost. Um, let me say this about his abilities as a lawyer. He was um, a great oral advocate. Um, but one thing that lawyers, public interest lawyers do that... I don't think uh, he gets enough credit for. He was a great organizer. Um, he, uh, in, in, in uh, the 1930s and 40s in the South, it wasn't obvious that the black community would be for desegregation. Um, there were entrenched, first of all, people were frightened but also there were entrenched interests that benefited from segregated schools. In particular, um, African-American teachers who were a important, had an important leadership role in the black community, they were, many of them were frightened that they would lose their jobs if there were desegregation. Um, and so he had to come into these communities and convince people to fight in circumstances where it might not be in their interest to fight and where they might literally lose their lives if he fought, if they fought. And he did that uh, through the force of his personality, through his eloquence, but also through this remarkable humor and ability to understand where other people are coming from and to connect with them. Um, I don't know that anybody else could have done it. Yes? Uh, did you keep up your relationship with him? Did you speak with him in his final days? Uh, not in his, I, I, you, you've hit a point that I'm really um, ashamed of. 
uh, I didn't keep up with him as much as I ought to have. Um, I would see him uh, once in a while. I, when, when I thought about going up to see him, I would think, gee whiz, I, I'm, I'm imposing on him, he's busy and so on. But whenever I actually went and did it, it didn't seem that way at all. I mean, he just seemed happy to see me. And, um, um, but uh, if the question is, did I talk to him you know, in, in a couple of months before he died, the answer is no. I wish I had. Do you have an opportunity to meet his family? Yes, he has a wonderful family. Um, his, um, um, his wife is still alive. She's a remarkable person. Um, and, and he loved her very much. Her name was Sissy. And he had two kids, one of whom was a lawyer, and the other of whom, is this a great country or what? He was a, uh, originally a highway patrolman in Virginia. And he ended up getting, having a high position in the police hierarchy in uh, the state of Virginia. Um, the, uh, how are we doing on time? I'll tell one more uh, story. Um, Sissy, his wife, uh, had more of an impact on uh, constitutional law than is widely recognized, um, at least during the year I was there. I'm sorry? It's his second wife, yes. His first wife, uh, Buster, had died. Uh, and I didn't know her, but I knew Sissy. Um, so Justice Marshall, whether it was because he actually believed this or whether because he liked to get under his clerk's skin, um, he'd come back from conference and he'd say, you know what? I'm just an old-fashioned lawyer. I'm going to join the Chief Justice's opinion in this case some very conservative outcome. And, and we would say, judge, you can't do that. You can't do that. Um, that this is, and we'd argue with him, you know, and, and he loved arguments like this. And uh, he, he had a standard line he would use. He'd say, well, I read your memo, um, and there's a lot in it, but it's got three things that it doesn't have that I've got. What are those, judge? It's got appointment by the president, confirmation by the Senate, and service on the United States Supreme Court. You lose, right? And he'd stalk out, out the room. Next day, he'd come back, and he'd say very sheepishly, say, you know, last night I was talking to Sissy, and Sissy was telling me, Thurgood, you just don't treat your clerks right. So you knuckleheads, go do whatever the hell you want. <laughs> and he'd vote the right way. Um, now, I think probably he meant to vote the right way all, this, <laughs> all from the beginning. But anyway, if you took him at his word, Sissy had a lot to do with things coming out uh, on the right side. Thank you all for coming this afternoon. Thank you so much. My pleasure.